0: You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: to The Light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. How many threads do storytellers weave together? On this episode... I love this person. S.J. Roseanne has won multiple awards for her fiction, including Edgar, Seamus, Anthony, Nero, and a private eye, Writers of American Lifetime Achievement Award. She's here to discuss her latest novel, The Mayors of New York. And S.J., welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I'm going to start with something because I, I'm a big fan of music and just taking uh, snippets from it. And I this may kind of... Segue into your book, The Mayors of New York. Mm-hmm. And it's about teenage love from the Carpenters in 1971. The song was called Superstars. Don't you remember you told me you loved me, baby? And when I think about one of the characters in the book, that's apropos. Would you agree or disagree? Yeah, yeah I would. I would agree.
2: I think a lot of this book. Well, a lot of this book is about the nature of being a teenager, even though the uh, point of view is not the teenagers. But there are three major teenagers in the book and a bunch of minor character teenagers, uh, all 15 and 16. And a lot of the book is about how different kids navigate that.
1: I've known you I've got to know you over the years going back to some of your earlier books. And my feeling about you is, would it be fair to say you love New York City warts and all? Because all the scenes in your book are in New York City. I know you've had a couple of books outside. But it seems to me that, I don't know if it's a proper way to say this, but I think you have a love affair with New York City.
2: I think you're absolutely right. Um, yes, yes. And it's one, it, it's it's. An irrational love affair, although I don't know anybody who's ever had a rational love affair <laughs> with anybody. But um, I do love New York warts and all. I wish it didn't have the warts and I could, I could give you a list of warts. But um, this city is, is not just my home. I was born and brought up here. But it is unique in my experience. I've traveled a lot and I've seen some other great cities, all of which I love. I mean, Shanghai, Hong Kong. Uh, London, Rome, uh, which, you know, lives on its past but um, has, has an eye on the future. But I think New York, because it's so unwieldy, because it can't – you know, our, our, our mayor now is, is having a cow because the immigrants are coming. The immigrants are coming. Right. You know? can't stop the immigrants from coming to New York, whether they're coming from Ecuador or, um, you know, Ames, Iowa – Everybody comes to New York because if you don't know where else to go and you want to make it, that's where you come. And um, because of that, we are a kind of wild frontier all the time, a, a, a ferment. And, and I love that. Um, it's not a good place to be if you have the kind of brain wiring that demands control and, and regularity. But if you can live with chaos, this is it's the capital of chaos—and it repays that love and attention. So, um, how does it repay? How does it repay that? It repays it with, uh, in a very big way, with art, um, music, and and uh, visual arts and theater—not Broadway theater kind of thing—not the art at the Met, although that too, but um, small galleries and, and people who sell their stuff on the street and musicians um, in, in little venues, uh, new music, old music. Um, and it repays it, it repays it in a big way with food because uh, as immigrants come, any immigrant who doesn't know what to do for a living finds a job in the restaurant of his people. And the restaurants of the people, I mean, there are Western Chinese restaurants now as the Chinese invade the Western territories of China, which they shouldn't be doing, but they are. And so people come here and opening those restaurants. There are Afghani restaurants. There are Palestinian restaurants. Um, So it repays it that way. And it repays it in a constant refreshing of things to see and think about that you can't really start taking things for granted in New York, even your subway route. You know, you can get from anywhere to anywhere, right. but possibly not the way you did it yesterday because something is wrong with that subway. You know, the A line is traveling on the F line and the F line's connected to the, and so on. Um, so you, you really have to be in the moment in New York and um,
1: it's, it's exhilarating. So I want to mention, you mentioned in reference food. I'm going to mention two places. One, when I was a very young boy, and my mom used to take us to Horn and Hotdock. And you we used to put the money in the slots, and the slot would turn, and you would get your food, and you'd find a table, and you'd sit down. And as I got older, we used to go into the city on Sundays to go to Yonashimel's. For cherry cheese caniches, where it come up from the basement, and a lot of people used to bring their Sunday New York Times, eat their cherry cheese caniches, and read the paper all day, and that was a wonderful slice of life in New York City because Yonah Schimmel's goes way, way back, and their breads are famous S- too. Yeah,
2: Yonah Schimmel's still there. Um, uh, the Horn and Hart art's not long gone, but Jonas Schimmel's uh, still there. I don't know that you can sit there all day anymore. But you can still get uh, a cherry cheese knish. I and
1: mean, then that that would fill you up for a whole day and then some. Oh my God, knish! <laughs> yeah, you know where, where
2: I was the other day, it's the Second Avenue Deli, where the knish is basically the size of your head. Um, yeah, that is that is one heavy food. That is that is the food of a people who uh, you know worked in the cold a lot. So.
1: So I have in front of me one of your older books. And I'll tell you why. Because the book was called The Art of Violence. And I asked in a previous interview, were you thinking about Jack Abbott? And you kind of smiled and said, yes, I was. So in that case, I was kind of right on. So I'm going to mention another name that you were thinking about in terms of this book. And the book, when didn't you start writing this book?
2: When did I start writing this book? Oh, Lordy. Well, when did it come out? It came out in December. So I must have started it. Uh, 18 months to two years before
1: that. All right, so the magic number for me is is two years or 18 months. Were you thinking about when you sat down to write this book, Jeffrey Epstein? I was not. But I was not
2: surprised that that's where it headed. Um, I I was, I I had another um, kind of plan for what was going on. But often the plan... For me as a writer, right. the plan I have in my conscious mind and the plan my subconscious is working with are different. And my subconscious clearly uh, was very taken with Jeffrey Epstein <clears throat> and that whole case. And uh, when I set up my openings, my, my, uh, the, 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 two, the two crimes that opened the book, uh, the kind of minor one and that they're called in on and, and the major one, um, it, it, my subconscious clearly said, Oh, Jeffrey Epstein. The other thing I have to say is that while I was writing it, in the very early stages, I watched, uh, a, uh I watched two things. One was, um, the, uh, uh, mm mm-hmm, Special, uh, a documentary on Jelaine Maxwell. Right. Um, whom I found the most fascinating figure in the the Jeffrey Epstein case and who does not appear here, really. Uh, I don't have anyone in that, but but, that circle of people. And um, I also watched a documentary on Anna, what was her name? The... uh, the fake heiress i know
1: who you're talking about she was russian yeah. wasn't she russian
2: she was she was russian raised in germany okay she was a middle-class girl but that wasn't good enough for her and so she became fake heiress. and um i i that does not work its way into the book except for that level of of Social stratum. That social stratum interested me. Um, so, but of course, the, the people who really interest me are the people in the much lower social strata. Um, right,
1: so so, I, don't, so I, don't, I don't want to go too low, but once again, when I'm sitting here reading, I'm pulling that stuff that I, that I can relate to and resonates with me in terms of, what are you thinking about these people? So I'm going to mention uh-huh. one of your characters, Oscar Trask. Was he based on what you're thinking about Roger Stone and Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn shows up in Showtime's Fellow Travelers, which was a great limited series. And he was, he was, uh. he was deep into that series. But I'm just thinking, you got a guy, he's a fixer. He's kind of nasty. He's got his fingers in a lot of different things. And he's a major character in this book. And I say, a eh, little bit of Roger Stone, a little bit of Roy Cohn. I don't know if it resonates with you, but that's how I kind of related to him.
2: Yeah. um, The thing about Oscar is that he's um, he's less the less the subject and more the object in a way. Um, But but yeah, all of those big, powerful guys who on the one hand do anything they want to anybody and get away with it. And on the other hand, are big um, philanthropists, right? It was Those guys, you know, it was the Sacklers. It was, it was that whole, that whole crowd of, you know, I, it was John Yeah. you know, John D who, who on the one hand was giving millions of dollars in art to, um, the Met and to found the Asia society. And on the other hand was murdering Sicilian miners in, in Colorado and, and did not see the, uh, a contradiction there so Oscar is one of those guys although Oscar is more aspirational right. you know Oscar Oscar would like to be one of those guys
1: so I won't but, also we've the discussion and Carnegie too and Carnegie Mellon and the libraries and everything else so for the, for yeah, the writers yeah. out there in terms of the art and craft of storytelling you just referenced that can you go for a little bit further the difference between being a subject and an object in terms of the narrative
2: um the subject of the narrative, I would say, is is more of, I mean, it's not not your narrator, but an active figure, somebody who who takes a role in producing the narrative, and the object is something more, so it is is more of a of a. Um, hmm. Um, as a stiller figure. Okay. Uh, a, a more uh, – a figure who would not move out of his trajectory if the subject hadn't come along and knocked him and who wants to get back to his trajectory so something has to be done about
1: the subject. That's I, the way. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Daniel Silva. He's got a formula. A very successful fungal, by the way, and he—he's he, letting Gabriel alone age in real time. In terms of Bill Smith and Lydia Chin, how do you approach aging if you do?
2: Yeah, no, not in real time because then uh, they would be my age. Uh, and, and this is this—you know—there's only three ways to do this. You can let them age in real time. And deal with the fact that eventually they get to be 50, 60. And as, as uh, um, Robert Parker discovered at, at one point, um, Spencer and Hawk were 70. Right. Um, and he had them going to the gym and, you know, working out. And so, but, but you can't really engage in fisticuffs the way you used to by the time you're 75 or 80, which is why he invented Jesse Stone. So you can do that or you can do what uh, Sue Grafton was doing. And have every story a couple of months after the story before it. And eventually you're writing historicals, which she was, which she enjoyed because she didn't have to deal with cell phones and stuff, but she had to remember, um, you know, did they have the fax machine yet? That kind of thing. Or you can do what I do, which is what most people do who write long lasting series, which is to have them sort of move, kind of slip through time. Right. They're getting older, a little older. Um, they may be three or four years later when they started, but they started um, close to thirty years ago. So they um, they you know people have to read the early books and and, uh, and and then when they read the later books, discard what they were saying about. Um, at one at one book, I remember Lydia um, was blackmailed by a cousin. She needed a favor from the cousin, and what he wanted in return was a dinner at Windows on the World. And, of course, Windows on the World was the uh, restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center. So you just have to deal with that if you're a reader. Um, and most readers are willing to, to do that.
1: So let's introduce, reintroduce my guest. The book is called The Mayors of New York. York. Authors is was I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. Now, I want to get to the book because the biggest mistake I always make is not giving the authors enough time to talk about the book. But I've had this conversation in the past with some terrific female writers of, I would say, uh, espionage thrillers and spy fiction. And the one thing they tell me, there is obstacles dealing with the publishing world because they think in terms of the reader – who can be old school, which I disagree with, they need a male voice to dominate, and the female has to step back somewhat. You approach it differently, I believe, that you alter your characters, Bill Smith and Lydia Chin, who are both very, very big and strong, but you go back and forth, but at one point, did somebody tell you, Bill Smith always has to be a lead because we need the alpha male to carry the story?
2: No, no. Um, and, and this is – it's a little different in, in private eye novels. In thrillers, there is a lot of that thinking, that it has to be a male. Um, although I, I think that if you look at the literature, it's really not true. But in private eye novels, uh, it was true. Of course, it was true everywhere. But by the time I started writing, there was uh, Koretsky, uh, Marsha Muller, right. uh, and, and, uh, and, and Grafton. And what I was told actually was a little bit the opposite. The first book I wrote was a Bill Smith book. And then I wrote a Lydia Chin book. And the publisher said, you know, we're going to bring the Lydia one out first. Because Bill is another white male private eye. And you are an unknown writer. And why would anyone looking for a white male private eye pick your book? An unknown, you know, if they want a white male private eye, they can go to, you know, Parker or, uh, or Robert Crace or, you know, any of these people. So we're going to bring out Lydia because she is a Chinese-American woman. There's not another one of those. Then we're going to get people hooked on that, and then they can go buy the Bill book. And I thought, okay, that's, that's cool. That's fine with me. Um, I was never told to focus on Bill. What's interesting among my readers is that it seems to be half and half – Um, You know, good, another Lydia book. I love her much more than Bill. Oh, good, another Bill book. I love him much more than Lydia. Um, You know, what can I tell you? But uh, for me, uh, the voices both come fairly easily. And the cases, it's obvious to me which is a Lydia case and which is a Bill case. And so I – alternate them and i keep notes and you know lydia will do this next but she's doing this now and then comes bill
1: and that kind of thing so you have a repertory company in terms of the people a lot of people come back from book to book now i want yeah. i am going to take issue with you for about one thing the one oh. character that i really miss in the book is lydia Jin's mom yeah, Lydia's
2: mom does not play a big role in this book.
1: I loved because her. I, I loved her, though, because she, you know, she'll she take on Bill Smith. She's got a very strong personality. I know she didn't fit into her, but I just had to voice my feeling of loss that her mom was not in the story.
2: I, I, I'm sorry. Well, she will be in the next Lydia book. She will, uh, she will play a role. Um, and, and, you know, she has a whole bunch of short stories of her own. Okay. She has enough short stories now that I may put out a book of... Lydia's mom stories so uh but yeah I mean she 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 grew on me I did not expect her to develop the way she did right and so you know I think it's great
1: all right so almost 20 minutes into the conversation we're finally going to get to what's going on with the mayors of New York because I believe that you do so well in every neighborhood there is a mayor so the characters in your book are the mayors of New York so kind of set the whole book up please
2: Okay, my set it up in terms of plot or in terms of what I was thinking of doing?
1: No, you go wherever you want to go cause I love listening to you. You can do both.
2: All right. What, what, I, what fascinated me, has continued to fascinate me about New York, is just that, that every neighborhood, every block, uh, every, um, every uh, occupation has a mayor. There's always somebody in charge. There's the little old lady who sits on the bench in the park there's uh the guy in the barber shop there's um the 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 chef there's there are people who are in charge and people who are not in charge and you go to the people who are in charge if you have a problem um you go to the to the the tax lady who's also uh, the boss lady and you say listen this is happening and this is happening and I can't get a response from this guy and she says all right let me uh, see what I can do and it's it's Everywhere. The mayor, the actual mayor, the elected mayor of New York uh, runs the, the big picture, negotiates with the unions, uh, is responsible to the city council. The city council people represent their areas and stuff. But if you really want to get something done on the uh, granular level, you go to your mayor, you go to the to the to the baker. Um, And the baker talks to the butcher and so on and so on. And that's the way it happens in a small town. And that's the way it happens here because we are a set of small towns. So that's what I wanted to do is have Bill and Lydia have to go from mayor to mayor. And of course, what happens, uh, you you see this happening in the book, I'm not giving anything away, is that each mayor, for whatever help he or she can give, wants something in return from the city for their neighborhood. Um, and this happens all the time also. You know, it 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 happens to politicians. Yeah, I'll deliver the vote, but we need a stoplight on the corner, that kind of thing. Um, and so that's what happens here. They all want something. And the actual mayor who has hired Bill and Lydia uh, to do a job for her is – in the position of, of kind of having to promise all these things if uh, the the job is successfully completed. And, and so that's what I want. And of course, what I love is writing about the, the various neighborhoods of New York. You know, my, my, my theory is, and ha- always has been that everything is an ethnic neighborhood, including the, the super blue blood wasp upper East side. Um, ethnicity is, is everywhere. We right. all have one, two, three, four. And, um, And so I like portraying those neighborhoods. I like portraying each one. And there are so many. I would bet that the one that will surprise most people is the African neighborhood in Staten Island, that most people will not know until they read the book or until they hear this podcast, that there is an African immigrant neighborhood in Staten Island, uh, based around a settlement of Liberians. Um, but these kinds of things, they're everywhere. Um, and you know, there's a big Somali neighborhood in the Bronx and they all have their own food and their own politics and their own festivals and their own music. And, um, that's kind of what I wanted to, to show in, 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 you know, 320 pages. So uh, which I, I, don't,
1: I don't know if you, know, you have enough time to watch television. I have too much time. But I love The Gilded Age, both season one and season two. And I think about you rendering the picture of the McCann household. And it reminds me of the Russell household and all the staff. The staff really knows what's going on. In the case of your book, in the McCann household... They really know what's going on.
2: Yeah, yeah. In a way that um, the uh, upstairs doesn't. Um, the the uh, the the mayor and her kids upstairs, and the uh, household manager and the chef downstairs, and probably the maid if they needed the, the uh, housekeeper if they needed to interview her. Um, except that the uh, household manager wouldn't let them, but uh, because you don't need to, but yeah, they know, they know. And if you, they, they, if you pay attention to them, this was, um, you know, who used to do this was, um, Archie Goodwin in, uh, in the uh, Nero Wolf. books. Right. right. Nero would be upstairs eating with the, uh, with the Duke or whatever. And Archie would be downstairs eating with the staff and he would be getting the information because they know. And that's what I wanted to show. And I wanted – the other thing I wanted was um, clearly there are some bad guys in this book. But I didn't want them to be the downstairs people. Um, I wanted them to be as, as challenging as some of their personalities are. Right. I wanted them to be good guys and, and to care about their uh, – the people in their purview.
1: In this book – Two very important characters are siblings and twins. One disappears, the other is the one, forgive me, I really didn't like, because (laughs) in my mind, I'm thinking about right now in the movies, been on Broadway, mean girls. She is the epitome, at least the way she comes across as a mean girl. As opposed to her brother, who comes, who's perceived as very shy, not very talented, who we find out is extremely talented, but the connection is a strong connection. In terms how you weave the narrative together, and I applaud you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, she's a bitch.
2: Um, okay. Can, yeah. Yeah. She's a fifteen-year-old bitch. Uh, you know, an entitled little shit as somebody, I'm going to have to, you're going to have to, you know, uh, 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 censor this podcast, but, um, and he is a confused, shy, 15 year old boy. He's, he's, uh, I know one or two people, like this. he's an actor and on stage he will take any risk. He'll do anything. He'll, but off stage, um, he, he wants to fade into, he wants to, to, to melt into the ground. Right. Um. And they are twins, and one of them kind of cleaves to the mother and the other to the father. Um, It is the girl who cleaves to the father because he's also a shit. And um, it's, it is, it was important to me. I, I started, they weren't twins when I started. And then I thought, no, if whichever one of them is older, it won't work in that constellation. They have to be twins. And uh they have to have constantly been at odds. And I just I also wanted to see if I could actually write um a mean girl. Um, I, I I I have uh, I have I have trouble making people who aren't the actual murderer bad guys. And she's she's not uh she's not a nice person at all. No. But um you
1: know, she she Comes through. Um, but the the very fact that she's not a nice person and I reacted in such a visceral way says you created a really good character because you got inside of me and I think you're getting inside of all the readers. Now for the people who Hear this podcast throughout the country. We have listener bases in in Europe and other places. That surprised me. We have a couple listeners in Russia, by the way, in Scotland and Great Britain, whatever. And God bless them. But for the ones that have never been to New York City and never been to Times Square and see all the characters and the icons of the superheroes in Times Square, that is an experience. And that part of the book, I think I I emailed you or texted you and said that part of the book, I absolutely love. It's a key component of the book in terms of one of the mayors of New York City. So kind of take us inside and paint a picture of that part of the book, what transpires in Times Square.
2: Okay, in Times Square, in real life, there are a whole bunch of of people and most of them are recent immigrants and they – rent costumes and dress up as uh, Marvel comics heroes or uh Disney princesses. There's Mickey mouse. There's you know, all of these, these people. And, um, they take, have their pictures taken with tourists and they they do tricks sometimes and, and stuff like that. And there is, uh, an order amongst them and the order is kept by the mayor of times square, uh, who in this case is somebody whom Bill and Lydia need to talk to. So they go looking for him. And the Times Square characters who don't all like each other, they're not all buddies or anything, but they're all, it's like, it's very much like, and I I compare it to it in a certain place, being in the circus. These are your peeps. And so when Bill and Lydia start asking after this guy, people become convinced that they are, uh, immigration agents and they either want him because he's here illegally, or they want him to give up all the other characters who are maybe here illegally. Anyway, they don't want Bill and Lydia to find him. So they try to prevent them by starting a fight. And there's a big brawl between Bill and Lydia and, you know, Elmo and, and, uh, and uh, Superman and Minnie Mouse and uh, that was uh, that was fun. That was I don't like writing action scenes, but that one was fun.
1: All right, so I'm going to give you another scene that I, I really enjoyed because it brought me back into, in terms of sense memory. If I can talk about sense memory, I'm not an actor, but years ago I was getting involved in a project in India, so I remember flying into New Delhi and getting out of the airport. And the smells and the sights and the sounds later on, we ended up in Darjeeling and Sakeem. You're setting the scene in Jackson Heights, brings back all the things about, for the people who even live in New York City and think they're very sophisticated, but never been to Jackson Heights, the way that you set up, I, I wish we had smell vision because it's very hard to betray it. And you can't even do it in movies, but the sights, the sounds and smells of what you didn't, in terms of the carrots in Jackson Heights, another great scene that I actually adored.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, I, I actually went out to Jackson Heights and w- kind of walked and walked and walked and walked and walked um, many, many blocks just to see what was there, what wasn't there, to see how right I was about what I thought was there. I, I have to say this about um, Queens, uh, Brooklyn, to some extent, the Bronx, especially Staten Island. Uh, New Yorkers who think they're sophisticated and other, and tourists who think they're sophisticated, but never get out of Manhattan are missing a great bet. Jackson Heights, the food, the, the shops, um, you want to buy a sari, you buy it in Jackson Heights. Um, the, the Staten Island, the, the, uh the African neighborhood, in the Bronx, the, um, the, the, huge and varied, uh, Latin neighborhoods. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's tremendous what, what goes on in the so-called outer boroughs, outer because there's four of them and they're not Manhattan, but 80% of New York's population lives in those outer boroughs. And those are the, um, recent immigrants. And so that's all the best food and, uh, and that scene in Jackson Heights from when they get off the subway at dusk and the lights are coming on and the smells are rising and, and the, uh, and the guy there with wants to stop for snacks, which, you know, he kind of cracked me up with the snacks. And, uh, and that enabled me to talk about the food. And, uh, I, I, I love, I love that. I, I could just write food porn all day. So, um. <laughs> That was that was what I wanted to do. What I was hoping to do with, with all of these scenes was to have people who don't really spend that much time outside of Manhattan read the book and say to themselves, Ooh, I gotta go there. Um and that if that happens, I will be um I will be
1: delighted. So so the segue is. Going someplace and right now institutions are dealing with aspects of mental health and there's an aspect of suicide of a very young person in this book. And it's really almost kind of the wheel of the book because it involves everybody else in terms of music and Bad guys and good guys and how students deal with this, a loss of another student, and it weaves in private schools and music camps and everything else. I don't want to belabor it, but I think it's important to just talk about how you address that topic.
2: Well, when you're young and something really bad happens that you think is your fault, it is not only – um, devastating, but it is the biggest thing there ever was and it looms enormous and there's no way out. For a lot of teenagers, when things happen, there's no way out. That's one of the reasons, and this does not come up in this book, but it's one of the reasons that, uh, the LGBTQ community has a, um, a, uh, Campaign where it, it the, the, the the theme of the campaign is it gets better because kids don 't understand that it does get better, it can get better, and so I wanted to talk about what drives kids to suicide or attempted suicide um, because it's you know the the difference is 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 nothing as far as the kids concerned. Um, you know, you, you, you try it and either you're successful or you're not, but to get to the point where you try it, um, that was, it was important to me to show how the, not just the viciousness of adults, but the blankness, the not, you know, not being there right. of adults can be a cause.
1: Of this. So we set this interview up. Originally, we had a reschedule it was going to be you and Jonathan Santlofer, and he will come back in the future. I'm not proud of a whole lot of things in terms of my professional career, but I am very proud of. I believe that this is accurate, bringing you two guys together who now have a long term friendship. So, talk yeah. about your good friend, Jonathan Slantlofer, who has a new buck out right now. He will come back, but right now he's in the middle of a major tour, and God bless him. But you guys have an interesting relationship. How would you describe that?
2: Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're very close friends. Um, he, uh, we met on, at, at, a, at an event you did on a freezing January night in 2003 and we had both come out by train we didn't know each other so we didn't come out together but we went back together and Jonathan's late wife was there and you know it's an hour train ride from wherever it was I don't remember Long Island on Long Island somewhere on Long Island and we talked and talked and talked and um, I was going out of the country the next week and so I sent him postcards occasionally um, and I got back and, and we had dinner and we just got closer and closer. We just got to be real buddies. Um, and in fact, uh, when my, when I told you I watched those, those couple of shows, um, right. I, I watched them at Jonathan's sitting at his, uh, his kitchen table. He wasn't there. He was out of town, but my apartment was being painted. So I was staying in his place, um, and uh, we, we, you know, meet we – have, we have lunch or dinner or coffee or something all the time, and we're, we're on email all the time. His new book is a follow-up to the previous one. Right. It's called uh, the, Lost, uh, the, the Last Mona Lisa and The Lost Van Gogh, uh, which is the new one, and uh, it's, it's really good. I say that having only read half of it because I only just bought it at an event that he did. But um, it's it's these characters I I know. And and he writes so beautifully about art. Yes. About the process of making art in a practical kind of way.
1: Now, what I want to interject is because I have read the book. I first met him for the book called The Death Artist. And what he did, he puts his drawings into the book. yes. Yes, and his yes. drawings are exquisite. His black and white drawings, and they're yeah. also in the books. So if you get a chance, pick up the book besides that chase book because it's worth it—not just for the story, for the drawings. I will ask you, since you are friends, can you be critical of each other? Are you beta readers, or you just stay away from what you do?
2: No, we are—we're not beta readers. Although there was <laughs> there was one time when um, I was asked to do. A short story over a weekend. Um, I, you know, somebody said I, I, I'm doing this book and I I need a story. Uh, somebody's dropped out. Can you give me a story by Monday? And I said I can't do it. I can't do it. And Jonathan said you can do it. You can do it. And so I would. Um, this was in the, back in the fax days. I was faxing him the pages as I did them, and he was responding. Uh, And I did it. I did it. Uh, That was the only time we were beta readers for each other. We each have other people uh, who who do that. Um, So I don't know. I, I don't know that he's ever written anything that I was critical of. And I hope I haven't written anything that he didn't like. We did together edit an anthology. And so we would talk about the stories in that and what we think should be done with them and which ones were 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 good the way they were and which ones needed editing so uh we did work together that way but we've never written together and we don't uh beta read
1: for each other all right so i saw i think it was on instagram i don't know where was the social media site i saw you all dressed in green with other women. So what? what is the Baker Street Irregulars and what were you doing with that group, all dressed in green?
2: I have to say, first of all, that that color um, was, it was complete coincidence. Um, each of us got dressed up and that was what we got dressed up in. And there was the fifth woman in that same color. But when we decided to take the picture, we couldn't find her. Um, the Baker Street Irregulars is a group that has been going on now. uh, This is the 90th year. Can you stand it? Um, And it is a group of people focused on Sherlock Holmes, Baker Street. His Baker Street Irregulars were the uh, children who would go around and and, and do investigating for him. And uh, it is a um, invitation. The dinner, which is what we were all dressed up for, is an invitational and – uh, it, to be a Baker Street Irregular, you have to get invested in, in the group. But nobody knows uh, who is being – There's th- this year's class actually was 14 people, which is enormous. My class was seven. But nobody knows who's being invested that year. Uh, first, you get invited to the dinner and you go to the dinner a number of times. And eventually, maybe, you get invested. I have been invested as the royal palace at Peking. You're always invested uh, as something from – the, uh, the the Holmes Canon, uh, and uh, and there are papers delivered and and uh, toasts given and the men are all in uh, tuxes. Uh, the women are talking. Oh, I shouldn't say this, but the women are talking <laughs> about coming in tuxes next year. Um, but uh, that's that's the uh, that's what it is. It's 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 a lot of fun. You know, it's it's serious but not. You know what I mean? It's it's. Uh, I mean, the papers were were hilarious all this right. year. And yeah there was one given um, uh, by Curtis Armstrong, the actor uh, on uh, the B list villains in homes you know not Moriarty not not the big guys but the but the the, the the less competent villains and and stuff like that so you know it's um it's it, that dinner is once a year, and then there are other events through the year if if, if people want to do them. But that's, that's what that was. And when we saw each other all in green, we decided we'd, we'd best take a photo.
1: It was a great photo. So I want to put this date in context. We are recording this episode, which will come down the road, the day after MLK Day. When I was yes. still a teacher when my first job coming out of college I used to play this I'm a minority student I used to play the speech every single year and I used to use poetry from Langston Hughes so I I've, you've I think I posted about that or put out tweets or there, access or whatever you just want to share your thoughts about Martin Luther King Jr
2: I think Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the greatest men of the 20th century and I think, uh, it 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 is such of of all the assassinations in that century um his was was not only the most tragic but in a way the most surprising that it since it hadn't happened yet right was surprising that it happened then um and i I think that um the recent I, I I have to say this, I, you know, my politics, I'm going to let my politics flag fr- flag fly, but the recent attempt by political conservatives to make him sound colorblind, that he was in favor of freedom for everybody. Well, of course he was, but the people who are not free are the black and brown people. So that was what he was doing. And, and, uh, I, I just think that um, had he lived, this would be a very different world. Yeah. I, I hope that's
1: true. No, I agree. I'm, two more things before we let you go. That we always try to end a segment where I can be criticized, and I have no problem with that because it's a learning and edification process for me. What did I miss? What did I get wrong? Did I miss anything? Did I get anything wrong? And you have the ball. By the way, I, um, Still a big basketball fan?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and still, still a player. I play twice a week. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I am a fan, although I, I'm going to have to go over to Madison Square Garden and throttle the Knicks personally. Yeah. Well. Because they are, they are, you know, they were doing great, then they weren't, then they were, then they weren't. And it's like, you know, they're going to they're gonna struggle into um, the playoffs in like, you know, fifth place and then collapse. I just know it. And and they have too much talent for that. It's just not on. Um, okay, that was my basketball rant. Um, did you get anything? I don't think so. Um, I think I think you missed some of the food. There's like food everywhere. You missed the cookies. All right. Um, <laughs> I wish some, I wish someone would make me those cookies, but um, you know they were my dream cookies. But uh, otherwise, no. I, I I don't think you missed anything. I would like to say. Um, uh, that that you didn't ask this, but I I concentrated on the uh, lower social strata, as I said, um, everywhere except in the Bronx, because the Bronx, when you say the Bronx, it brings into people's minds the idea of the lowest social stratum right, strata, right. Um, and uh, what I. What I The place I sent them to, therefore, in the Bronx, is the ritzy northwest corner with big mansions, estates. And people generally don't know this place. Mark Twain was a guest at one of those estates. Tuscanini had his estate up there. Um, and I just wanted people to know that – I think what I wanted to get across is that whatever you think is the – uh, kind of cliched representation of the borough that I'm talking about, you're wrong. Um, there are places that you did not know about that uh, New York really wants you to know about. And that was.
1: That's well said, because there's this is all saying all roads lead to Rome. In terms of this book, all roads lead to Riverdale which is that upper part of the Bronx people don't even know about. But uh, something very dramatic happens. I will leave it there. What I will do is uh, David Letterman used to have stupid pet tricks. So I'm going to do my version of stupid questions. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But if somebody knocks on your front door and you open it up, who would take your breath away?
2: Oh. Oh, I wish you had warned me about that question. Oh, so many people. Um, um, um <laughs> Clyde Frazier.
1: <laughs> That's the basketball person. Yeah. I yeah. like that one. And he's still got it. He's still got it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Mike Bream loves him, adores him, but they work so well together when they do the broadcast from MSG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So this, this closing for us is for all the nascent ri- writers out there, and, and I'm going to pose this, in a sense, a question. What's the difference between a pizza and a writer? The pizza can feed a family. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, thank you for the laugh. I practice my comic at comedic timing. I'm not a comedian, obviously, but once again, I want to thank S.J. Roseanne. The book is called The Mayor's... Of New York. I'm Larry Davidson. This has been the podcast Artful Periscope. Till next time, bye bye.
0: The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, stitcher spotify iheartradio or wherever you get your podcasts special thanks goes to our producer christy crucifaro sound editors and engineer ryan o'hagan the song alleluia is performed by vanessa and you can find her music at starfrost.com october blues is performed by dana songs and can be found at danasongs.com if you enjoy this podcast Visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at Larry Davidson's Productions.com. You can also find out about other author related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at SachemLibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.